the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I need the word to stand on. Welcome to the show. It's the fourth day of Jesus' Passion Week. We're going to talk about what he did on that fourth day in just a couple of minutes. But first, let me introduce myself in case you missed the intro. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart or mind, We'll do the best that we can to answer those questions. You need only to call us. Dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area here in San Antonio, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Uh, you can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send in your questions to us that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature of your phone with the KSLR app, also free. Uh, just hit call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for our primary number. It's 340-9585. I'm actually going to be glad when today is over because tonight... Our Isaiah Bible study, our Old Testament Bible study, um, we're in this section of woes, and it's not really encouraging. Um, but see, when we're done tonight, then I get to focus only on Good Friday uh, for a Good Friday service, and then for Easter uh, Sunday morning, the the empty tomb that we celebrate. Um, so um, that's what I'm looking forward to. Hey, while I got you, I'd like to invite you again to our Easter services. Uh, we're going to have two services on Easter Sunday at 8.30 and 10.30 in the morning uh, at the Judson High School Performing Arts Center. Our place isn't big enough for the crowds that we get, so uh, the Judson High School Performing Arts Center uh, in Converse, Texas, easy to find, uh, 8.30 and 10.30. Bring your families. If you come from the radio audience, uh, be sure to tell somebody uh, one of the ushers or anybody else can get you to where I am. And uh, we'd love to meet you, Paul, and I would face-to-face. So uh, that's coming up. I'll mention it again at the end of the program and then all of the rest of the days this week. By the way, that means uh, also that tomorrow Paul will be live in studio with the date day edition of the program. So that is our program Thursday, ladies. If you have any questions or need any encouragement, tomorrow is your day. Okay, let's get to, uh, while I'm waiting for some questions or some phone calls, um, let me talk about day four, just for a couple of moments. Uh, Imagine, we went through a recap of days one, two, and three yesterday. And I can only begin to imagine how physically and emotionally exhausting this week was for Jesus, knowing what's coming. I mean, he was human, he was emotional. Um, he would be up pretty much 24 hours a day simply because 
there was just so much to get accomplished. And on the fourth day of Jesus' final week, he was invited to the home of a man named Simon the leper. Now, he wasn't a leper still. He would have been more accurately called Simon the former leper. Nobody would have been in his house if he was still a leper. But obviously this was a, a Jew who had been touched by Jesus, who'd been healed by Jesus. Imagine from a disease that was incurable. Imagine the heart of gratitude he would have. And of course, he would want all of the people that meant anything to him at all to be introduced to this Jesus. Evidently a man of means. And he opened his home and there was quite a crowd there. And in the middle of that dinner, there was an unnamed woman who began to cry and she would wash Jesus' feet with her hair and with her tears. She would anoint his feet. Of course, the people in the crowd, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he knew. But you see, that's what he's coming. That's why this setting in Simon the leper's house is so important. Leprosy in the Bible is a type of sin. It starts out small and it spreads and it's incurable. There's no known human cure for leprosy. It's called Hansen's disease in the world that we live in. But there's still, after nearly 2,000 years, there's no medical cure. It can be managed today. But it wasn't the case in Jesus' day. And Simon, the former leper, at the touch of Jesus, was healed. Well, that's exactly how we're healed. In fact, that's the best picture of this entire last week. Jesus setting his face as flint to go to the cross at Calvary. And all to accomplish one thing, to cure the world of the only incurable disease, sin. And before him was a former sinner, former leper, and then a woman who everybody knew was a sinner. And yet she approached Jesus and was made well. Pretty amazing thing is Jesus began the day earlier, teaching in parables. The purpose of parables, never forget, is to illustrate the truth, never to hide the truth. And the closer Jesus got to the cross every day, the more important it was that people understood him. And so he taught in parables. All in all, a full day, but when you only have hours to live now, it's important that Jesus maximize every day. Remember with a grateful heart this week, all that Jesus did for you. Remember how much he loved you. He proved he loved you. And then with a grateful heart, as we approach what we ironically call Good Friday, we're going to see the full demonstration. King James uses the word, I love it, the uttermost demonstration of the height and depth and width and breadth of his love. We all need to be grateful a whole bunch more than we are. Okay, let me get to some questions that have been sent while we wait for any phone calls or new questions to come in. This is from our email inbox from John. He says, could you explain who are the three shepherds in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 4 through 17, and who is shepherding God or Zechariah, or is it someone else? Um, good question, John. You know, um, uh, Zechariah is, is on balance. Uh, I think the most difficult book in all of the Bible to interpret. There's lots of guesses, and you've got to be really careful about your history, and you've got to be really careful about context. But it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book, and I had a great time when I was teaching it. Um, 
The, the answer to your question, I'll, I'll be more specific in a moment, but, but Zechariah is the one who's being asked the pastor. And even though he knew that his ministry would fail, in the sixth verse of Zechariah, chapter 11, God tells him, for I'll no longer have pity on the people of the land. I'll hand everyone over to his neighbor and his king. They will oppress the land, and I will not rescue them from their ends. And now Jeremiah, I'm, I'm sorry, Zechariah, is being asked to, to pastor, to shepherd these people. This is the equivalent of saying to a modern pastor, even somebody like me, that the church that you've been chosen to pastor is a church where everybody there is going to go to hell. A church that invites false teachers, bad shepherds steal from them to tickle their ears. And Zechariah is being asked to pastor that church. And he did what he was told to do. So I pastored, verse 7 says, the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two steps, one called favor and the other union, and I pastored the flock. Now favor, of course, is a symbol of the Jews' position of favor, being chosen by God. It's exactly the same symbol that we have. We've been chosen by God. And when he says, particularly the oppressed of the flock, that's the heart of Jesus. So in pastoring and shepherding the flock, it says in the next verse, in one month I got rid of the three shepherds. This is an illustration of what happens even today, every time God sends real shepherds to his people. They may meet resistance, but God loves his people. He cares for the oppressed and the flock, and so he sends them faithful pastors. It gives me a moment to say to you, if you have a pastor who's been faithful, somebody who rightly divides the word of God, and at the same time loves you, and you know your love, be so grateful to God for that wonderful gift. For those of us who are pastors, it is the greatest job in the world. Such an honored and privileged position that we need to truly be grateful. Now in Zechariah's case, he said, as he did those things, the flock detested him. Then he says this, I grew weary of them and I said, I'll not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those were left eat one another's flesh. Now, in this particular case, this is Zechariah getting in his flesh a little bit. Uh, he is unlike Jesus because Jesus never gets tired of his people. Not then, not now. And yet Zechariah was given this challenge knowing that the, that the people that he was taking care of would detest him. So, there's the answer, John. I hope that answers your question, but uh, let me do one thing I can suggest to you if you have uh, want, want a more in-depth uh, picture of that, um, then what you can do is go to our website, calvarysa.com, and, and read the, or not, you, well, the notes are there too, but, but you can listen to the study that I did uh, in Zechariah chapter 11. I had a blast with that entire book, so uh, I hope that makes some sense and gives you some direction. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jennifer, and she says, what is the difference between being wrong about some doctrine and believing something that is heretical? Boy, that's a great question, Jennifer. Um, we're all wrong about something. You know, I, I think the positions that I give to my church, I think the, 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 the questions that I answer on this radio program... Of course I think I'm right, and I hope I'm doing it because I've studied, I've got the heart of Jesus, and, and I'm taking the Bible in context, rightly dividing the Word of God. But the truth is, Jennifer, we're all wrong about something. But heresy, on the other hand, is being wrong about Jesus. All heresy misses the character, the nature of Jesus. I'll give you an example for a Mormon. They believe in something that's heretical. B. 
because Jesus is not the Son of God who is God the Son. He's the Son of God, but he's a created being. So you see, they've taken Jesus and they've demoted him from being the creator of all things. And we know from our New Testament that he is the creator of all things. There was nothing made that wasn't made by him, we're told. Paul adds that he holds all things together. And when you demote Jesus from being creator God into something that's created, in the case of the Mormons, he is the spirit brother of Lucifer, sort of the good brother. They look at Jehovah's Witnesses, they say, no, he's Michael the Archangel. Even the Jesus of the prosperity movement is heretical. The Jesus who is rich, a Jesus who wants you to be rich, that's changing the nature and the character of who he is. So these are, heresy always involves things that are way beyond just in-house discussions and disagreements. So if they mess with the character of Jesus, the nature of Jesus, then you're in a heretical circumstance. Uh, if it's the Calvinism versus Arminianism or or um, um, our tongues for today, those kind of things, uh, those are just things that we're free to disagree on. But the difference is important because the difference is heaven or hell. If the Jesus you believe in is not the Son of God and God the Son, if he isn't the creator of all things, rather than a created being, then you don't have a Jesus that can save. That's how important it is to have sound doctrine. Uh, but remember, Jennifer, there are people that are wrong about lots of things that doesn't make them a heretic. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Derek wants to know, Pastor Ron, what do you mean when you say how we live identifies who we are? You know, Derek, lately, and I don't know why, because I've been saying this for 24 years, um, lately, I've been getting a lot of flack over this. Um, people are accusing me of a works salvation approach, nothing at all. But you see, what I'm saying, Derek, is that what we say with our lips doesn't matter at all if the person we are in heart isn't consistent with what we say. I can say I'm a Christian, but if I live like an unbeliever, then what makes me think I'm a Christian? When I look at Galatians chapter 5, and I see the good fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. When I see those things, if I'm a real believer, then those things ought to characterize my life. It doesn't mean that I'm any of those things perfectly all the time. But when we talk about being kind, for example, if the people in your life say, oh no, he's not kind, he's a jerk, he's always angry about something, or if we hold on to unforgiveness, we refuse to extend forgiveness to somebody because something they did, what would make us think we're Christian if we live in sexual immorality? What would make us think we're Christian? You know, one of the things, Derek, that causes me a lot of grief is what people come into the church, men and women who are living together, and, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, baptized, did all those things. I say, yeah, but, but, you're, but you're living in sexual sin. Oh no, it's not that big a deal. We're married in God's eyes, they'll say, or well, well, we love each other, it's just not the right time to get married. But they're unwilling to repent of that sin. I ask them the question, what makes you think you're a Christian? Just because you say you know who Jesus is. But even Jesus said on that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And they'll say, didn't I do this or didn't I do that? I, I cast out demons. I perform miracles. And Jesus said, depart from me, for I never knew you. And Derek, I think one of the things that we have to understand is that the issue in heaven is not do we know him. Does, the issue is does he know us? the one who knows our hearts. And because we live in this culture where it's so easy to say, I'm a Christian, and nobody wants to offend, so what they do is they just assume it's okay. But if you're not living 
like a Christian, you're identifying yourself as an unbeliever. I'll give you one example, and then we'll go to the phones here. Eric, uh, there's a, a Democratic candidate for president who's running. I think he is the governor of Indiana or um, something, a governor or mayor or something. I, I don't know him. He's just kind of bursting on. He's going to be the new darling of the Democratic Party. He's young and he's gay and claims to be a Christian. And I read a description of him, said he is a devoted Christian follower. And yet he's openly gay. His behavior identifies who he is, not the other way around. doesn't matter what we say. What matters is who we are and we live according to what we believe, what we really believe. So Derek, I hope that helps. Let's go to Rick on line one from Live Oak. Rick, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Um, I got a real quick question. Uh, you, you mentioned something a second ago about Armenian Armenianism, and I uh-huh. never heard that term before. Would you expound on that a little bit, please? I'll listen to you up here. I can do that. Thank you, Rick. Um, uh, I, Armenianism, the, the way to look at Armenianism, uh, Justice Arminian, and Arminius is, is the, the, the founder of this thought process. Uh, and, and he uh, would be sort of the opposite end of the spectrum from someone who says that they're a Calvinist. So when you've got these two wide-ranging beliefs, Calvinism on one hand, Armenianism on the other hand, uh, both of those oppositions are out of balance. Now what the Calvinists would say, no, you're securing your salvation if you uh, persevere, the perseverance of saints uh, the, the the Armenians would say, no, you can give away your salvation. You can walk away from your salvation. We have free will, and God won't force anybody to, to to love him if he doesn't want to be loved. So, yeah, you can be saved one day and then not saved the next. Now, there's other differences, but that's the sort of the defining difference, um, Rick, between the two groups. So the Armenianist is just somebody who... Um, really doesn't believe that God is able to finish the work he began. Um, and Arminius is one who takes um, the concept of free will to unbiblical extremes. Um, yes, I could be saved today, but if I make my mind up tomorrow not to be saved, then then I can I can just give my salvation back or I can walk away from it or I can lose it. And, of course, that's a really, really terrible position to take um, because you've got all kinds of Scripture that mitigates against the possibility of walking away from our salvation. Jesus says, the Father, uh, who's greater than I, has you in his hand. First, he said, I have you in my hand. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Uh, Then he says, the Father, who's greater than I, he has you in, in his hand, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Jesus says, Father, I haven't lost any that you have given me except the one who wasn't really mine, the one doomed to destruction, the son of perdition, referring, of course, to Judas. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. And if God is the guarantor, then that guarantor guarantee is rock solid. So there's a very important things to, uh, when you're, you're reading the scriptures through a systematic theology, whether it's Calvinism or Arminianism, Rick, um, you're going to impose upon the scripture because you're taking the scriptures through the filter of your systematic theology rather than just reading the Bible for what it says. So uh, I hope that answers your question. That is um, an unhealthy, uh, out-of-balance view of eternal security. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate it. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We're about two and a half minutes left in the program. In this first half of the program, here's a question from Andrea. She says, "In John chapter fourteen, Jesus tells his disciples not to let their hearts be troubled. What do we do when we have troubled hearts? Well, we do what Jesus said for his disciples to do." He said right after that, trust in God, trust also in me. Now, uh, when when God says, and he says it over and over in the Bible, he says, don't worry, he says, don't be afraid, be anxious for nothing. We've got 
uh, those sort of exhortations that, that are given to us continually. Um, the, the truth of the matter, we, we all need to be real about who we are. We all experience all of those things, but Jesus is telling his disciples, and by the way, this is at their very, very worst moment, at the lowest they can be, they finally realize that Jesus was serious when he said he's going to die, he's going to be taken from them. And then he tells them, don't let your hearts be troubled. And said, trust in God, trust also in me. So Andrea, when you're troubled about something, or when you're worried about something, take that before the Lord. Don't just let the devil sort of use you as a spiritual punching bag. Take those things before the Lord. Jesus will say to you, he'll whisper to your heart, he'll say, don't worry, I got this. I think we need to remember that Jesus is God and God is sovereign. And whatever the problem might be, whatever it is that you're troubled about, you take those things to Jesus and he will give you whatever it is you need to endure. It doesn't mean he's going to take away the things that you're worried about. It means that his spirit will rest upon you and you're going to find that you're going to be okay. We've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions let me make a correction uh rick and this is for you i'm i misspoke and said uh justin arminius uh but his name was jacobus Arminianist, um, and he uh, was uh, a reformer, uh, again, the complete opposite of the um, position of a Calvinist. Um, they believe in exactly the opposite things where, where the, the, the Calvinist would. So uh, the idea, the five points of Arminianism uh, are simply um, the way the, the theology of Arminianism differs from the theology of Calvinism. And again, they're opposite ends of an unbalanced theology. Balance, balance, balance. I say that all the time. Let's go to our next question. This is from Kenneth. Why did David ask God not to take the Holy Spirit from him when we can't lose the presence of the Holy Spirit? Um, Kenneth, one of the things you have to understand, again, this is where context matters so much. Um, David didn't have the Holy Spirit like you and I have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was given to David um, in power to perform um, whatever it was that he needed to do uh, in order to be the king of Israel, God's people. So, so the, the, the Spirit would come upon David in great power. But at the same time, Samson's a great example of that. Samson was the big, strong guy. Uh, they wondered where his strength came from. It wasn't from his muscles. It was from the power of God. And, and, and it required the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon him. Well, when David says, don't take the Holy Spirit from me, this is in his famous Psalm of Repentance, Psalm 51. After being busted by Nathan, you're the man, Nathan said. Um, and, and David's sin with Bathsheba was discovered. Um, that's basically David saying, don't take the anointing as your king away from me. He's just making a plea, a, a petition to the God that he knows very, very well. So, you and I, we can't lose the presence of the spirits given to us as deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. But such wasn't the case. The Holy Spirit was not given to anyone individually until Jesus' death and resurrection. 
And of course, since the very beginning, Acts chapter 2, the Spirit has been the driving force by the church. And we'd like to think that we're in the Spirit all the time. Of course, we're not. But that's not heresy. It's a, it's a song. It's a poem. And David is simply saying, I, I did it. I'm sorry. Against thee and the only have I sinned, O God. He said, I love that. David, I've said on this program many times, I think is the best repenter in the history of the world. And at the same time, um, he understood the consequence of sin. And so he also said, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Renew within me a right spirit. And when he says, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, he's simply saying, I'm, I'm your king. And of course, God heard that prayer. He didn't depose David at all. Very quick story, uh, Kenneth. Um, years ago, we sang that song. We have a song uh, that, uh, I, I don't think we've sung in a long, long time, but it's basically Psalm 51. And I had somebody come up very angry at the end of the service. You're singing songs that are heresy. I said, I, I, I hope not. What song? And he said, well, David, when, when he said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That's not of, of God. That's that's false doctrine because we can't lose the Holy Spirit. He was really angry. And I said, have you read Psalm 51? And, and he never had. The point is, I said, that's word for word out of the scriptures. And he still left mad, but at least he was left corrected. Thanks for the question, Kenneth. Let's go to Jeff calling on line one from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. I was listening hi, to a... Hi, I hope you're doing well. Um, I was listening I to a Bible lecture last night where the pastor had said that, in fact, Good Friday is not the day that Christ was crucified, but rather it was Thursday. His, his, uh, his point was that this was, this was something in Catholic tradition that when the Reformation happened... It just stayed that way, but that uh, Christ was in fact crucified on Thursday. I would like mm-hmm. your opinion of that, please. Yeah, Jeff, thank you for, for, for calling. Um, a couple of things. First of all, um, there's a lot of, of haziness because the Jewish day started um, uh, in the evening. Um, if, 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 for instance... We get to sunset tonight. We still call it Wednesday, but they would call that Thursday uh, because it's the next day for them. So we're, we're, we're just turning things upside down. But there is no question at all that Jesus was crucified on Friday. Um, most of the time, Jeff, the objection that I get is, wow, but he was in the, the, the earth for three days and three nights, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale or the fish for three days and three nights. Um, but but what we've got, this is a, a Jewish uh, uh, idiom. Um, Jews considered any part of a day to be a day. So if, if I said, I'm going to spend the weekend with you, that doesn't mean I have to spend three 24-hour periods of time with you on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But part of the day on Friday, part of the day on Sunday, Saturday, all day, or part of the day on Sunday. So Jesus was in the grave from a Jewish perspective uh, for three days and three nights. So there's no question that Jesus was crucified on Friday um, and placed in the tomb. Um, the, the, remember the rush to get him off the cross before, um, and in fact, the, the rush first to get him on the cross, but, but they had to do it before the Sabbath they started. And the Sabbath is Saturday. So Friday is the day that Jesus was crucified. We have a neat, this is for everybody else, we have a neat uh, um, service we've been doing on Good Friday for a very, very long time where we set up a cross and we have people put something on a piece of paper, uh, not with their names or anything, but just we want them to come in contemplatively. We want them to think about their heart. Is it right with God? If not, let's get it right with God. So there are things that we can put on that that piece of paper that... that, um, um, we we were repenting of uh, maybe it could be just be like our first call or our first question from um, I think it was Andrea who said um, what do we do when, when our hearts are troubled 
you know, you can put those things that your heart is troubled about. Uh, for parents, kids breaking their hearts, they can write their name and the kids, Lord, I give them to you kind of thing. And when we come in on Friday while worship is going, there's a long line of people coming in and they're nailing those pieces of paper to the cross. And during the worship, um, it, we're always so crowded. I, I don't typically invite people from the radio audience just because we're so crowded. But, but, but imagine what it's like to come into a worship and hear those hammers being pounded on that cross. And then we get that cross completely covered with those pieces of paper and the nails. And then we take that cross to the auditorium on Sunday for Easter service. And we let people know, we remind them that all those things you put on that cross are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the empty tomb validates the power of God to deal with all those things. But Jeff, make no mistake, they were trying to get everything done and accomplished before the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a Saturday. The the crucifixion of Jesus was on a Friday. Uh, There's lots of people on the Internet that will say, you know, this was started by the Catholic Church or this was started by church tradition. Uh, And and their scholarship is just dishonest and lacking. Go to our next question. This one is from Amanda. Amanda's angry. She said, I think David should have been punished for sexually assaulting Bathsheba. Why did God let her rape go unpunished? Well, Amanda, I, I'm aware that that there is a Me Too movement in the church, and it sort of has twisted the details of David and Bathsheba's affair into, into accusing David of raping her. Uh, and and the, the problem is it's simply untrue. Um... David didn't sexually assault her. Bathsheba was a a willing participant. Uh, It's also likely, and people always get mad when I say this, but it's also likely that she had her eyes on David. She knew who lived above her. She knew that David stayed home. Why would she be bathing? On her rooftop. Now that in and of itself wasn't unusual. Rooftops in a very hot place. People would spend a lot of time on the rooftops getting some air. And the indications are that she really wanted a relationship with David. So when David called her, sure, it would have been awkward. They were both involved with others. Bathsheba with Uriah, and he was off to war. Um, the sin is attributed to David. Now, make no mistake, Bathsheba was responsible, but this was not a rape. It was not a sexual assault. Um, she could have said no, and knowing David's character, he wouldn't have forced himself on her. But the thing is, neither one of them wanted to say no. David was where he shouldn't be. This all happened at a time when kings go to war. David, instead of going to war, was at home, sort of abdicating his responsibility as a king of his people. And she made sure that she got David's attention, but there was no rape, no sexual assault. And I would encourage you, Amanda, to stop looking at the internet for your theology. 340-9585. Here's a question from Victor, who says, Pastor Ron, can I have your thoughts on A.W. Tozer and John Stott? Um, yeah, the complicated people. Um, uh, A.W. Tozer um, is one of the most gifted communicators through writing um, of, of any Christian I've ever read. Um, I, I've read some things that he wrote that take my breath away. I mean, I have to process them. He, and And... Doctrinally, he's rock solid. Uh, I, I, I highly recommend him. Uh, but but A.W. Tozer is just one of the best. John Stott, uh, for many years, has been maybe my second favorite Bible commentator. 
and and I I so appreciate a lot of of his scholarship uh, and have for many many years and uh, I have no problem Victor uh, recommending um, his commentaries um, he was an Anglican uh, but a brilliant brilliant scholar and when I said these are complicated people it's because both of them um, were failures and, and by that I mean A.W. Tozer um, he was terrible to his wife he didn't beat her or abuse her but uh, for the calling of God he just completely ignored her and upon his death, she was sort of set free and remarried and has written things like, I've, I've never been happy in my life as I'm, as I'm happy now. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always conflicted when people's great minds don't produce great lines. Uh, John Stott, I told you, he was one of my, very, my second favorite commentator of all time, and I still read him. But John Stott... Uh, who had a son who died, was the believer. And John Stott, sort of emotionally, um, forgot all the stuff that he wrote and became uh, an annihilationist. And in other words, I just can't believe my son would be being tormented in hell forever and ever and ever. And what he ended up doing was was changing his position because it made him feel better, thinking that his son was no longer being punished. So those are the kind of things that trouble me, but but I can absolutely recommend um, their stuff. Let's go to Jimmy from San Antonio on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, Pastor Ron, um, my son called me today about 3 o'clock, and he was crying. He had to tell me something. And... uh, it was very touching. We just finished praying in the house, my wife, the whole family, and his girlfriend. I think they're eventually going to get married, but um, and my daughter. But well, he confessed to us that when he was five years old, he was sexually harassed and by another child. And finally, uh, he's 28 now. He just came out and he told us. So we prayed for healing and everything, but I just I just thought I would share that with you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Jimmy, did he, did he say how old the other child was? The other child was about nine. Okay. But the child is old now. He's about 30 now, but... You know, I don't know, they were children. Yep. And he was, you know, my son kept it in for the longest time. And the other child's dad passed away about 10 years ago of cancer. But my son didn't want to say nothing for the longest time. And I guess he finally came out. We're going to guide him through counseling, through our church and everything. Yeah. So I gave him the number to our church and so he can go through counseling and they can help them more. Okay, Jimmy, thank you for letting me know. I'll be praying for you and for your son. And, and um, you know, these things, God will be very gracious. God will will um, not remove the memory of, but, but he'll remove the sting of these kind of things. It's not as, as harmful or as painful as having been abused by an adult or a position in a person in a position of authority. But um, if he's been holding this secret in, um, then then getting him to counseling is really, really um, important and, and do it quickly. So thank you for letting me know, Jimmy. 340-9585. We had Dale from Jonestown. Dale, you can call back. You had to hang up. I'm sorry you were on hold. But um, the lines are open now. Here is a question from Philip. Philip, you're going to try to make people mad at me. He says, is John Hagee a heretic and a false teacher? If so, should people in his church confront him? Um, John Hagee's a false teacher. Um, I wouldn't put him in um, 
I wouldn't characterize him as a heretic. Um, I'm personally convinced John Hagee is a Christian. Um, I think he's going to have a lot to answer for with the prosperity gospel and um, stuff that he teaches, but but um, um, he's not a heretic. Uh, he is teaching false doctrine, and it's hurting a lot of people. Um, should people in the church confront him? Yeah, they should. However... Um, you know, people go where their ears will be tickled. Will they hear what they want to hear? And those people in that church simply aren't well taught enough to identify false teaching. Um, again, uh, I'm, I'm sure he's a believer. And um, I pray for him, not as much as I used to, but I pray for him. I pray for his son. Um, it's one of the biggest churches in our city. I pray for... Um, them for that reason um, but um, he's not a heretic and um, if you're looking for the people in his church to confront him that's probably just not going to happen so Philip I guess that's the best I can do honestly uh, for those of you who go to Cornerstone I know we have listeners who go to Cornerstone um, I want your pastor to be blessed abundantly and I don't mean financially uh, I just want him to have the peace of God can I just say this um I've come to admire Joyce Meyer, who um, has recently come out and said that she was unbalanced in her prosperity doctrine. Um, I think that's probably understating it, um, but I, I use her as an example. She's a very popular teacher. Um, but see, people will be very gracious if you just come out and say, you know what, I've been doing the wrong thing, teaching the wrong stuff. John Hagee needs to say to his church, I'm sorry, I've been teaching you. That God wants you to be rich, that if you have enough faith, God wants you to be healthy. And those things are wrong, and I'm sorry. And he would find the body of Christ very forgiving and... Um, I'd be more than happy. Now, I'm a a little teeny, teeny fish in a little teeny pond compared to John Hagee. But I'd be more than happy if he would say, I was wrong. And I would say, welcome, brother. So, don't get mad at me. My heart's in the right place. Here's an anonymous comment. It's not a question. Uh, he says, or she says, I think uh, pastors and church leaders should serve without being paid. I think the church would be more pure if they don't, did not get paid. Well, you're not a church leader, nor are you a pastor, so it's easy for you to say that. Now, I don't get paid very much. Um, God takes care of me fine. But uh, pastors have families. You know, I've got... Um, Seven staff pastors, that's the right number. I'm being nodded at. Um, three of them have four children. One has five. No, one has seven. And, um, you know, those, those kids need to eat. They need clothing. And, and, and so, yeah. In fact, Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, uh, elders, pastors who serve well deserve double honor. And that honor is not just us bowing down to them. But it, but it it's a reference in Greek to, to, to money. So we make our living um, doing this. Uh, and I just don't think it's true that the church would be more pure if we starved ourselves. So I don't think pastors should be paid enormous salaries. I think uh, a pastor should live at about the means of the average congregant in his church. Uh, to live above their means, to to drive cars that cost $100,000, or to live in homes that cost a million dollars or more in some places. Um, you know, if you're a pastor in Beverly Hills, California, you're going to live uh, to a much higher standard than if you're a pastor in San Antonio, Texas. That's just the way it ought to be. We are servants of the people. And sometimes when we make too much money... This is the kind of backlash that we get. Um, 
uh, a bivocational pastor, and we've got some who do that. Um, they can be distracted uh, from their main calling. So I just don't think it's fair, Anonymous, for you to say that you think they should serve without being paid. Um, I don't think anybody who says something like that really appreciates the amount of time and effort that goes into doing what we as pastors do. We're on call 24 hours a day. Um, You know, it's not like we only work one day a week. Um, I used to work 100 plus hour weeks before I got saved. And honestly, I'm busier now than I ever was back in those days. So I I think you're wrong. I think your comment is divisive and, and even judgmental. But you have the right to have that opinion. 340, oh, we don't have time for calls. Okay, 340-9585, save that for tomorrow. Um, Here's the last question of the day. Uh, Anonymous, I have a friend who, oh, I've only got one minute, I can't do that. Okay, I'll I'll save that one tomorrow for for tomorrow, Anonymous. Here's one from Adam, how and when did Mary die? Uh, We don't know exactly how she died or when. Uh, church tradition has it that she lived for 11 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. She lived most likely in Ephesus with John the Apostle. Here is your mother. Um, um, this is your son, Jesus said from the cross. Uh, and then she died. She didn't ascend to heaven. She died. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for the calls. Um, you've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Paula will be live in studio tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. Lord willing, we'll see you then. God bless you. See you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.